How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. It's just amazing how I I get this trickle back to me here and there from people that there's a pastor here, a pastor there who uh, don't understand or don't think it's necessary to confess sin. And yet these are free grace pastors. And it's funny when I start asking them questions about 1 John, they they don't realize that to get an interpretation of 1 John 1, nine that doesn't affirm confession for the believer means you have to fundamentally shift your framework of interpretation for the epistle and you end up to having to take a view that is consistent with lordship salvation. This shows that one of the errors we have today is that people don't know how to think theologically and they don't know how to think exegetically. My good friend Tommy Ice, whom you all know, uh, son graduated from uh, the Master's Seminary last year, and one of the comments he said about his generation of seminary students is they really don't want to learn how to exegete or do expositional preaching, which is verse-by-verse preaching. They just want to learn a, a, a theological system and then go preach that. And, and they're not teaching the Word. And it doesn't matter what you do, you gotta teach the word because the word is where the power is. And that, and you have to know how to exegete to know whether your theological system is, every theological system just needs to be tweaked a little bit here and there to be fixed because none of us are infallible. Except for Gene back there. I understand that infallibility comes with age. Part of your AARP card, right? At least that's what some people think. And then they run for president. But that's another story. So let's have a few moments so we can now get back in fellowship. We'll uh, have some silent prayer and uh, make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have your word. It's just a a minefield of wisdom. And the more we study, the digger we deep into it, the more we come to understand you. At least that's the purpose, not just to know your word for the sake of knowing your word, but knowing your word so we can know you. So we can walk with you, walk by the Holy Spirit, walk in the light, so that God the Holy Spirit can transform us from day to day into the image of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Now, Father, we pray tonight that as we study in First Peter, as we come to understand the vital principles here that, that are so important to help us understand the role and the significance of adversity in our lives, that as we study this, that we might come to uh, understand how we should approach adversity when it comes and understand that you have it there in our lives for a purpose. And we pray that you would open our eyes to these truths in Christ's name. Amen. 
Okay, a couple of things that actually fit what's going on in, in our topic. What we have in First Peter, as I'm focusing tonight, is having come out of our study of 6 through 9 last week exegetically, developing a framework of application from what we're learning in the text, which is how, how things should be. But what we see is the, that we run into different kinds of adversity. Some of it is self-induced misery. Some of it is the result of decisions that other people make who are in our periphery, who are in rebellion against God. And some of it is just because we're living in, in, in the devil's world. Some of it is going to be directed at us specifically and personally. It may come from a family member. may come from someone we thought of as a friend. It may come from people in the workplace because they know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and they vibrate in hostility toward you every time they see you simply because you stand for something that they feel personally threatens them. And as we go through uh, these culture wars in our society and as Supreme Court decisions move move us more and more away from establishment truth, this just gives greater, greater freedom to uh, a lot of people in this country to come out. Uh, I'm not talking about the homosexual issue per se, but to come out of the closet to express their hostility toward Christianity. And it may be for any number of reasons. It may have to do with environment. It may have to do with, uh, with, with various moral issues. It may have to do with uh, Second Amendment rights. It may have to do with any number of things, but they know that you as a Christian believe something that they think threatens them personally. And as a result of that, uh, you are going to have a target on your back. And I already, I've been walking around with a target on my back for a long time. Trouble is up to this point, most of the people shooting at me have been Christians. That's what happens to pastors. Usually it's his congregation for but not in my case. So here we have a case, and this is this has been around. Most of you probably heard part bits and pieces of this recently. This is a report that came out in the Daily Signal today, which is a publication of the Heritage Foundation, and it has to do with the situation in the workplace. And I have said for 25 years that the most dangerous threat to Christians and their Christian life is what you are forced to compromise at the workplace by human resources. And most Christians don't even know it. Now it's becoming more and more overt, and they're waking up to it. I talked with a man the other day who just resigned from his position working for a company in the oil and gas field, and he was responsible for about 6,500 people worldwide in terms of the projects that he oversaw. And he said, I just couldn't do it anymore. As a Bible-believing Christian... The pressure on me from HR was getting so bad that I have people working for me who are going through desperate situations in their lives, and I can't say anything to them about how to resolve their problems. I can't, you know, I can't ask them into the office and close the door anymore and have a private conversation because somebody may accuse me of some kind of sexual harassment. I mean, the whole thing, it just makes it, makes it virtually impossible. So this is a situation, a court case taking place in Atlanta 
regarding a fire chief in Atlanta who was fired from his job. Now, the reason he was terminated from his job was because in his private life on his own time, he wrote a book. He wrote a religious book, a book related to his Christian beliefs. And in that book included, it was not a book about his views on homosexuality, but that was a topic that he touched on there. And as a result of that, he was terminated from his job because of his views uh, that were against same-sex marriage. And so there is a civil hearing, a civil case now, uh, because he's wrong, dealing with the fact that he's been wrongfully terminated. Now, according to the Alliance Defending Freedom uh, Senior Counsel uh, summary of the argument of the city of Atlanta, he, he said, quote, The city actually argued that you're entitled to have beliefs and opinions, but you have to keep them to yourself inside the four walls of your house. Notice he's not saying you can't bring them into the workplace. It goes much more beyond that, and that's wrong. There are laws on the books to protect the First Amendment rights of, of Christians, of any, any person, whatever their religious beliefs are, at the workplace. But this, that's not what they're arguing. They're not saying he can't bring them down to the fire house. They're saying that he has to keep them within the four walls of his private residence and the four walls of his church. He cannot take them anywhere out in public. The quote reads, they actually argued that you're entitled to have beliefs and opinions, but you have to keep them to yourself inside the four walls of your house or your church, that you shouldn't bring them out into the public, and you shouldn't bring them out if you're employed by a government agency. So someone who writes a book on their own time, their own effort, away from their employment because they work for the government, they can be fired because they hold to an, a view that is unacceptable to the administration, unacceptable to, to, to the government. So I've been saying this for a long time. This is coming, and this is why cases of this kind need to be adjudicated in a court of law. Uh, courts are still on our side on most of these things, and they're not going against us. But we can't just sit back and be passive. And the next story I want to tell you about is what happens when the government truly goes against you. This is a story basically of two men. You probably never heard of either one of them, but there's an outside chance that if you've ever read anything about the Protestant Reformation, then you may have heard about Hugh Latimer, but I doubt that, unless you went through a church, uh, church history course where you studied the English Reformation. But the person that is even more obscure, who's the really significant person in this, is a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. And uh, as if you've gone through any kind of secular education on the Protestant Reformation, what you were told was that the German Reformation started with a uh, for, uh, for, uh, well, a Catholic monk at the time named Martin Luther, but the Protestant Reformation had nothing to do with religion. It had everything to do with producing a male heir to the throne of England, and that, that Henry VIII really didn't change his theology. He just didn't want to obey the Pope. And there is a modicum of truth to that. The problem is, by the time that Henry broke with the Pope, 
and with the Roman Catholic Church, the influence of Luther and Calvin had become so great in England that there were numerous uh, Protestant, uh, numerous theologians who had become converted to Protestant beliefs, both in Scotland and in England. And so as soon as uh, Henry made the break, they were able to come out of the woodwork, and this lit the fires on the jet of the uh, English uh, English Reformation. Now, uh, Latimer, who I mentioned at the beginning, was uh, staunchly opposed to the Protestant Reformation. And this man, uh, Bilney, who was a scholar, New Testament scholar, Cambridge University, uh, gathered regularly at a place called the White Horse Inn to have a secret Bible study in prayer. He was discovered, and eventually he was burned at the stake for his heresy, which was reading the Bible in English, uh, in, at Norwich, that is Norwich, England, not Norwich, Connecticut, on August the 19th, 1531. But before he died, he was able to influence Hugh Latimer, Latimer had previously opposed the Reformation and had preached a strong sermon against Lutheranism at Cambridge, but Bilney was able to privately seek him out and persuade him of the errors of his belief. And as a result of that, Luther came to a grace understanding of the gospel, or excuse me, Latimer came to a grace understanding of the gospel and began to preach that justification was by faith alone. As a result, he fell into disfavor by the uh, powers that be at Cambridge and in Henry VIII's reign, and he was arrested and put into the Tower of London. But when Henry died and his son Edward VI came to the throne, Latimer was released and engaged in ministry. But then when Edward VI died after two, two or three years on the throne, His sister, Queen Mary, Mary Tudor, who was known as Bloody Mary, came to the throne. And uh, he was put back in prison, and he was tortured. And then he and another uh, Protestant reformer by the name of of Nicholas Ridley were tied back-to-back to to a stake, and the uh, fires were lit under them. And as the flames rose, Latimer was heard to yell out, Be of good cheer, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. Isn't that great? These guys had dying grace. They faced this suffering. They faced, I just can't imagine being burned alive at the stake. And they faced it with incredible courage. Now that came only because they had uh, solid understanding of grace in their soul. They understood the Word of God, and as a result, they were able to face adversity without compromising their convictions and without compromising uh, the Word of God. And that's what Peter is talking to us about, is that talking to his audience about, is that the importance of understanding the dynamics of adversity and suffering and being able to face it with joy, to be able to shout out that, that as, as you're being burned alive at the stake, that by God's grace we'll light a fire in England that will never be put out. 
And that's pretty much what has happened until, until recent years. Now, just to review as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, we're looking at the long sentence of verse 6 to 9, and we've covered that pretty well. <coughs> First thing I want to remind you of is that in these last weeks, we focused on understanding the usage of the word salvation, God's plan of salvation. If you notice, I changed the title of the slide from three phases of salvation to God's plan of salvation. The reason for that is as we look at this particular slide, we realize that the word saved or the word salvation can refer to one of three phases in salvation. Stage one is justification. That instant in time, that, that nanosecond when you recognize the truth that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that you believe that, that you affirm that, you assent to that as true. At that instant, God the Father imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you just and regenerates you and gives you eternal life. It all happens simultaneously within a microsecond, and you are a new creature in Christ. And that's being saved from the penalty of sin, for now you will spend eternity in heaven. That kicks off phase two, because as soon as you come to life, you're going to live. It's not long probably before you sin, and so there has to be a recovery from sin, and most people don't learn about 1 John 1, 9 for a while. And the second phase is phase two, where we're saved from the power of sin. This is spiritual life, spiritual growth, learning, as Paul says in Romans 8, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to kill the enemy. Now, we can never fully kill him. But we are to engage in that throughout the rest of our life until we die physically. Then we're absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord, and we're saved from the presence of sin where we are with the Lord. But this whole, this whole plan that includes phase one, phase two, and phase three is sometimes summarized by the word salvation. That's why I wanted to change this. So sometimes the word save or salvation refers to this whole plan focusing more on its culmination, but it includes this this whole process of God taking us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive and glorified in heaven. Now, the focus in Peter, as we've seen, is on the deliverance from trials, from tests in this life. There's an emphasis as well on our ultimate rewards, but the focus is on the here and now. And we've gone through the uh, first part of uh, this section in verses 6 through 9, and I've pointed out that there are several key words here, the word rejoice, the words uh, for various trials, the word for genuineness, uh, dokimas, the word for faith, the word for tested, dokimazo, the word for rejoice and joy, again down in verse 8, and the end of our faith, in verse 9, and that these words are also used in James 1, 2 through 4. Joy, various trials, testing, faith, and the word perfect twice, translating telios. These are the same words that we have over here in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. That tells us that the subject matter in verses 6 through 9 are this, is the same subject as James 1, through 2 through 4. We're not talking about how to get into heaven. We're talking about how we are to respond to circumstance, negative circumstances, adversity, uh, testing, suffering in this life. And so the context here isn't talking about getting into heaven. 
avoiding the lake of fire, phase one salvation. It's not talking about phase three salvation. It focuses on phase two salvation. The reason that is important, and I want to remind you of this, is when we get into verse uh, 10, verse 10 begins, of this salvation. Now, when you look at that word, of this salvation, in verse 10, and then you read the next part, it says, The prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Now, where our mind goes is we automatically want to think that that salvation, because the prophets are looking into it and and prophesied of the Spirit of Christ, uh, of what would happen when Christ came and his and his sufferings and glories in verse 11, then we say, well, that's just got to be the work of Christ on the cross. What happened at the cross? Jesus suffered. What's the topic here? Suffering. Jesus glorified the Father. And as a result of that, Jesus was delivered through the resurrection. But that's what Peter is going to as a pattern for us, as our model, is in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's he's not talking about getting into heaven by and by. He's talking about deliverance in the midst of adversity right now by putting our faith and trust in, in God and the provision and the sustaining ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So this whole section is about, as I've said before, rejoicing in the midst of the present fiery trial because our knowledge of the word and our love for Christ enables us to look to a future deliverance in this life as well as the glories to come. So that you won't find too many people taking that particular view. I happen to look at the uh, New Testament commentary that the free uh, that that the Grace Evangelical Society published. And it was interesting, I don't know who wrote that particular commentary on First Peter, but he got really close to this. But it's really hard when you're looking at some of the language here to think that, that this isn't talking about what is accomplished for our justification. But it's not. This is the end statement of verse 9 where we finished last week. Receiving the end, the culmination of our faith. That's our faith rest drill. Not faith at the cross, but faith rest drill. The end of our faith is we're facing trials and we're claiming the promises of God. It's the salvation of our souls. And I pointed out last time that the word receiving there is talking about the fact that in verse 8, we rejoice with inexpressible joy, full of glory, when we receive, so when we get out of that dark tunnel and we realize God's deliverance, then we are excited. We rejoice with exceeding joy at that particular time when we receive the end result of our faith, which is what? The deliverance of our life. Now, see, I, I've translated that a little differently. Most translations say the salvation of your soul, but the word sozo, translated salvation, can refer to anything from healing, can refer from deliverance in the midst of a, of a war, it can refer to justification, and it can refer to other aspects of the Christian life. Where we have a parallel, and now I have on the bottom of the screen, James one twenty one. And in James one twenty one, James writes, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. That was the superfluity of naughtiness, if you remember that from the King James. Uh, it's basically talking about confession of sin there. 
Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to do what? To save your souls. See, that's the same language we have in Peter. But what it's talking about here is not phase one justification because we know that he's writing to my brethren, my beloved brethren. They've already received the word. It's called the implanted word here in this very verse. They're already justified. So they're receiving this to deliver them, to deliver their life in times of trial and in times of testing. And this is the same kind of use where the word soul is used as a synonym for life. Just as we've seen it, it's a more archaic or antiquated use today to refer to uh, when people die that it's a lost soul, uh, using that as as a euphemism for death, that so many souls... Uh, died on the Titanic. That was wh- how it was reported. Uh, this was the way we would report that. So the word soul was understood as a synonym for for, uh, for life. Now what we see here, and when we look at verse 8 and 9, as I was wrapping up last time, one thing I wanted to point out, the joy, when we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, that idea of glory is related to the glorification of God by passing the test through the application of doctrine. Now, that's interesting as it brings glory into this situation that, frankly, when we hit a lot of these trials, the last thing we're thinking about is glory. We're just thinking, why me? Why now? I'm just too tired to deal with this, Lord. And that often happens in our lives because the things hit us, situations hit us at the worst time. But where in the world do we see this connection of glory to joy in the midst of adversity? Takes us right back to one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Romans chapter 5. So if you keep your finger in 1 Peter, we'll just flip flip back to Romans chapter 5, which is talking about the results of justification in terms of, of reconciliation. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul is explaining the consequences of having been justified by faith in verse 1. As a result of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he says, and not only that. In other words, as if that was enough. No, there's more. There's more than just being saved from the penalty of sin. There has to, there is a growth process. He says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Now that is another word for what? What does that phrase mean to glory in your tribulations? Isn't that the same thing as counting a joy? Isn't that the same thing as rejoicing with great joy? Sure it is. We also glory in tribulations. What gives us the ability to glory? Now, now I want us to think about this as every situation where there's a little adversity, where you don't like this afternoon. Um, I was on the computer trying to work through some, some remote access things, and nothing was working. And, of course, I texted Bryce as we were trying to work through this. I said, of course, I'm teaching on adversity tonight. So this is exactly what we can expect. Never did work. So 
we have all kinds of problems. We're going to call up tech support. We're going to call up customer service. We're going to go to the airport, and we find that our airplane has been delayed five hours, and then after we wait three hours, we hear that it's going to be delayed another eight hours, or we miss a connection. There's all kinds of things that happen. We are in a hurry to get to a meeting somewhere, and there's a wreck or there's construction, and uh, everything goes cattywampus. And what we need to train ourselves to do is to think in terms of the fact that God is still in control. So wait a minute. Maybe there's a divine reason for this. Maybe there, maybe we'll know it. Maybe we won't know it. Maybe the divine reason for this is just to get us to think, hmm, my response here is not to be anger, resentment, bitterness, and, and react out of self-centeredness, but to focus on the Lord and to trust him and put the circumstances and situation in his hands. Each circumstance like that is another test, an opportunity to rejoice in tribulations. Tribulations is not necessarily something big and terrible. In fact, a lot of times the charge of the mosquito, especially if you're getting one after the other, can be much more aggravating and irritating than when the elephant jumps on you. The elephant jumps on you and say, well, there's just absolutely nothing I can do about it. But when you're just getting hit with one little thing after another all day, it's very easy for us to just get irritated, impatient, and out of fellowship. So we glory in tribulations. And then the next word is a participle. We went through participles the last time. This is a causal participle. We glory in tribulations because we know something. That's the same thing that James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know it's a causal use of the participle there. So the reason we can joy, exalt, have glory is because we know something, that tribulation produces perseverance. Now, there's not a single boot in the first week of boot camp that really enjoys everything they're going through when they start going through training because they have to revamp the way they do their whole life. They can't sleep in till 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. They can't stay awake as late as they want to at night. They can't wake up in the morning and decide that I just don't want to make my bed. They can't say, well, I just don't feel like running today. I think I'll just walk. You know, they, their, their volition is gone, and somebody else is controlling their life to train them so that they can be efficient when they go into combat and that other people can depend upon them and they can learn to depend upon others and to survive combat situations. Well, that's what happens in the believer's life. It's what happens in your life and what happens in my life. All these little tests, God is taking us through a spiritual boot camp to train us to trust in him so that when we get to a certain point, we're going to be able to handle the really tough circumstances and situations in life. We're going to be like a, like a Hugh Latimer. We're going to be like Thomas Cranmer. I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He's the one who, who held out his hand over the flames while they were burning him alive at the, at the stake at, at, at Smithfield. And he sang hymns to the glory of God condemning his hand that had previously signed a letter of recantation of his Protestant faith. That Those are men that had 
spiritual character formed in them whose focus was on the Lord so that they could handle what they faced though they were going through incredible misery. So we know that tribulation produces endurance, perseverance, the ability to hang in there and stick in there, and, and, and it develops mental focus to, to block out the distractions and to focus on what really matters so that you can grow and mature and go through this circumstance or situation in a way that honors God because it's building character in you. That's the next thing. The perseverance builds character. Character is what Christ is after, not making you a character. We have a lot of people like that. But making you, making character in you, whose character? The character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, Christ in us, Paul says, the hope of glory. He's not only talking about the fact that Christ indwells us, but that he is forming his character in us in our spiritual life. When that character is developed, then we are spiritually optimistic. We have hope. We have a confident expectation. God is in control even though I'm in jail, even though I'm in chains, even though I'm being tortured, even though uh, my toenails are being cut off with wire cutters, uh, even though my toes are being cut off with wire cutters, my fingers are being cut off, even though they're doing horrible things to me, I can still focus on the Lord. But see, if you go through the little things and you never develop the ability to focus on spiritual things and focus on the Lord, then when it really gets bad, how are you going to focus you didn't let yourself get trained to do that. You, you failed ba- basic training. So we have to go through the little things in order to be able to handle the big things. And then Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by God the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So one of the things that is going to energize us and empower us and strengthen us is God's love for us. As God works in our life, he is going to build that character, and that character is going to be formed on the basis of his love. So 1 Peter 1.8, we, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So at this point, before we get into the next verse, I want us to take some time to think conceptually about what the Scripture teaches about suffering and how we are blessed in the midst of suffering. You can use the word suffering, you can use the word adversity, you can use the word testing, but we talk about uh, we talk about uh, uh, suffering for discipline and suffering for blessing. And that suffering may not be big, but it's it may be small. Some people don't like the word suffering because they think that, well, it's not suffering unless it reaches the category of um, Pastor Abedini suffering in an Iranian jail and being tortured there, or if it rises to the level of a Hugh Latimer or a Thomas Cramner or being put in prison like and being hunted down like Martin Luther was that's suffering but or maybe you're one of the Christians in Syria 
or in, in northern Iraq and you're being hunted down and your uh, family members and your loved ones are being tortured b- before your very eyes before you're being killed. That's what you classify as suffering. But the Bible uses this word suffering as just a generic term dealing with any kind of adversity in life. Basically, when things are not in your comfort zone, when things are not going the way you would like them to go, and there is an opportunity to evaluate whether you're going to trust God or trust in your own human viewpoint uh, techniques to keep things going smoothly through your own efforts at intimidation and manipulation. So let's just review this. This will probably take us well into next week, but that's okay. Uh, we need to understand this. First of all, The first point, we have to recognize that every believer goes through tests. Every believer goes through adversity. Every believer goes through challenges day from the moment you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed. You get up in the morning. You didn't sleep well last night. Your eyes are bleary. You can just barely put one foot in front of the other. And you go into the kitchen and you turn on the coffee pot and no light comes on. What do you do? See, that's not really a big thing, but for most of us, that's a significant thing. Well, what if you're in jail somewhere because you're a Christian and you don't even get coffee? Now we're talking about some real suffering. Okay, so we have to think about this. We have to reflect on how are we going to respond to that kind of a situation. Now, that's not a very significant situation, but how we handle it is part of the training to how we're going to handle other types of situations as we as we grow and mature. So every believer goes through tests, and a test, I'm going to define it in a very simple way. It's when you have a choice, and whether you are volitionally conscious of it or not. See, a lot of times we react out of habit so quickly that we're not even aware we made a decision to react that way. And see, we grow up and we mature and we grow up in our families and we learn from our parents a lot of wonderful things. We also learn from our parents how to manipulate people, how to stay within our comfort zone, all kinds of sinful strategies and patterns to avoid having to really depend upon God. doesn't matter how godly your parents were they were still sinners just like you you probably have a sin nature that's compatible with theirs so it worked so what happens now is we have to start training ourselves to think differently about each of these situations at each situation's a test am i going to do it god's way or my way it's it's pretty simple it's just like a binary equation one way or the other So we choose to either sin or we choose to obey the Word of God. We can react through mental attitude sins. We can react through sins of the tongue. We can react through overt sins. Uh, We can, depending on the situation, we can be angry. We can be manipulative. We can malign other people. We can lie. We can deceive. We can avoid responsibility for situations. But we can trust in God or we can say a prayer or we can give thanks in all things, even when the coffee pot doesn't work. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. That's in the next stage of spiritual maturity. All right, second point. God's training program utilizes uh, adversity to teach us 
to implement these spiritual skills and to practice them. Now, it's been really interesting lately. I've been reading a lot of different material on how biblical counseling has been used effectively to help people with various what we might call psychological problems that are usually thought by most people in our culture to only be treatable through uh, through various drugs and pharmaceuticals. And uh, there's been a tremendous amount of success, but if your presupposition isn't that God is the only way and his grace is totally sufficient, then you basically create an escape hatch for yourself and you bail out and you try to find some other way because the hard way is to trust God. That's not the simplest way because you still go through difficulties as you go through things. So it's a real challenge. So God takes us through this. And these ten spiritual skills that we've studied in the past are skills. That's a critical word. A skill is something that takes a long time to develop. Now, I know I've got people in the, in the congregation that are musicians. I've got people in the congregation that are, are somewhat athletic. I've got people in the congregation who are involved and have been involved in the past in different areas of sports and athletics. And if you're going to excel in any of these areas, if you're going to excel in dancing, if you're going to excel in piano playing or trumpet playing or trombone playing or clarinet playing, if you're going to excel uh, in any kind of skill, if you're a craftsman, you have to practice over and over and over again. The people who win Olympic gold, the people who... Uh, do well and are rewarded for their uh, their excellence are people who practice over and over again. And it's not just practice, it's perfect practice. Because if you practice it wrong over and over again, then what you're doing is you're embedding into muscle memory the wrong movement. So you have to practice it. And I used to hate that. When I was in band in high school, I would have to come in, we'd all have to come in two or three times a week and just practice technique. It's much more fun to play melody, but just technique is just learning basic basic skill sets and learning how to how to play up the scale and down and play difficult difficult things and shift from a from a high note to a low note and uh, rapidly tongue through a series of 16th notes. Uh, these kinds of things take practice over and over again, but then when you're playing various melodies that call for this, then you're able to perform. So you, it's, the boring part is often the training part. Or if you're in dance, going through a same movement over and over and over again. Or if you're playing football and you have to learn how to tackle and you're hitting that tackle dummy over and over and over until uh, your shoulders are all black and blue. Or if you're just working out, if you're a weightlifter, you have to learn how to lift those weights properly. Set correctly before you begin to move. Move right. Have your feet in the right position. Your knees pointed in the right direction. Have your back in the right position. Have your your glutes tensed the right way. All of those things. Because if you're off just a little bit, then if the weight's really heavy, you can seriously damage yourself. You can seriously hurt yourself. Then you can find yourself um, on the way on the way to the hospital. So the the fact that these are skills means that this is something that has to be practiced 
over and over again. There's only one person who's going to take you through that drill outside of God, and that's you being willing to say, I need to master this. I need to set up and memorize a series of promises so that when I'm getting ready to call customer service, for example, that I've got a series of verses on the use of the tongue that I memorized out of Proverbs, like a soft answer turns away wrath. And that you just rehearse those verses in your mind for five or ten minutes before you pick up the phone and dial. While you're on hold, uh, you might quote a few things dealing with patience and gentleness and these things until somebody comes on the phone. But you you have to adopt that procedure yourself and 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 make yourself work work, work your way through those things. And you have to practice so you set up those kinds uh, kinds of drills. That's what is necessary in the spiritual life if we're going to develop these skills. I've known a lot of Christians who are extremely skilled in the first spiritual skill, which is confession of sin. They They confess sin very quickly and very easily, but the next step is to walk by the Spirit, and they're just still crawling at best for two or three seconds, and then they're back to skill number one because I can do that real well. So I'll just keep confessing my sin. But we have to walk by the Spirit. That's where real life is. So we have to learn how to go, go through those particular, uh, those particular skills. Now, Scripture says that we have three different levels of spiritual growth. This comes out of, of 1 John. The spiritual childhood is referred to by the word technon. And in, in spiritual childhood, we have five basic skills to work on, confession, Walking by the Holy Spirit. WHS is walking by the Spirit. FHS is filled with the Spirit. There's a reason I put walking by the Spirit first. Had a conversation with somebody last week. We were talking about this, and I said, how many times have you listened to me teach this? How come you put filling of the Holy Spirit there in front of walking by the Spirit? Well, that's because that's how I was always trained. Yeah, but you're wrong, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. If this is a skill... Who is doing the work of learning the skill? It's an active voice verb to walk by the Spirit. That's addressing your volition. You have to walk by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, be filled by the Spirit. That's not an active voice verb. It still engages your volition, but it's passive. A skill is something that, by definition, I'm actively learning. So I prefer to put walking by the Spirit first because if I'm saying, how do I handle this problem, the way I handle it is I walk by the Spirit, which means I stay in fellowship. If I'm walking by the Spirit, I will be filled with the Word by the Spirit. That is automatic. That is reflexive. If, I, if I'm not walking by the Spirit, I won't be filled by the Spirit. But if I am walking by the Spirit, I will be filled by the Spirit. You can't be filled by the Spirit before you're walking. The walking is the priority command. So, as a result of that, we learn to trust in promises, the faith rest drill. And then the next two go together, grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. Grace orientation means we have to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice when Peter says that in 2 Peter 3.18, he says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He connects the two. 
Understanding grace is integrally related to knowledge of the Word of God. We have to know the Word of God. Now, these skills, when we practice them, and we will develop in spiritual maturity to the point where we can begin to approach adolescence. Now, think back. If you're a mom or dad, you've raised kids, you can, you've watched this with your kids. But if you've never had kids, then, then you can think about it in terms of your own, uh, your own experience. But re- reaching maturity from 9 to about 25 is not a straight-line progression. If I were Baptist, I would say, do I have an amen here? It's not a straight-line progression. We go up and we go down. Sometimes we go up a little and go down a lot. It is, it's all over the board, isn't it? Uh, it's not straight. And that's the same way in the Christian life. Some days we do pretty good and the next three days we don't. And, and in fact, we don't even think about the Word of God for three days and then we, then, then we sort of slap ourselves upside the head and think, well, I need to do something a little better. Uh, so, Moving into spiritual adolescence doesn't mean that we've got a lock on the first five spiritual skills. Any more than reaching the age of 30 means that all of those basic things you should have learned in in kindergarten, all the basic things related to uh, good manners and treating others with respect and treating other people's property with respect and not reacting and all those basic things uh, related to to life that you were supposed to have begun to learn in, in kindergarten, you may not have fully mastered at 30. But you've moved on and you're trying to master other things because you've mastered them 30, 40, 50 percent, which enables you to move to the next level. So the next level is spiritual adolescence. First John 2.13 describes this with the term neoniskoi, which is a young man. It's spiritual adolescence. And when we get here, we get to the point where we're moving toward thinking about life long-term rather than short-term. That's one of the hallmarks. I remember my mother reading an article about this to me when I was about 15, probably from the sense that you need to learn this, kid, that maturity is learning to postpone gratification. It's learning to put something off that you want today in order to uh, enjoy it better and be more prepared for it later. It's, it's playing the long game and not the short game. And when we get into the Christian life, in terms of our personal sense of our eternal destiny, we begin to realize that that my spiritual growth, my spiritual maturity right now impacts what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's going to impact the quality of my experience in the kingdom. Uh, my roles and responsibilities when I get into the kingdom of the millennial kingdom and on into eternity are going to be directly impacted by what I do here and now. Some people are going to have rewards. They're going to have a lot of gold, silver, and precious stones. We studied this last time in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. But other people are going to enter heaven yet as with nothing. Okay, no rewards, no roles, no responsibilities. So we have to learn to live today in light of eternity. Then as we get into maturity, we have these three that are connected. 
we're learning to really love God. Now, babies can love their mom and dad. They look at their mom and dad and said, you, you fed me, you gave me a big teaspoon of sugar, and I love you for it. But when you're nine, that love begins to be a little more rounded out. When you're 19, it gets a little shaky sometimes, but it's still there in a, in a clench. And then when you get to be 29, 30, you really begin to appreciate your parents and you begin to love them a, a lot more in a fuller, more mature way. So personal love for God becomes a great motivator to stay with it. I, I think from my experience, this isn't from the scripture, but from my experience, people fall out at spiritual adolescence. They get functional spiritually, and then they get a little proud and then they think they've made it, and they're not hearing anything new in Bible class. And I realized this in my own life. When I came back from Dallas Seminary, moved back to Houston, was sitting in Bible class every night, I really wasn't learning a whole lot that was new. But I realized that the reason I needed to be there every night was because I needed to be reminded of what I already knew every night. Because the sin nature makes me want to forget it every day. And I needed that reminder every single night. It wasn't that it was new, but I, I, it wasn't that I was answering questions. Because when you're young, you come to church, you I want to know all these things. I want to know what God wants me to do. I, I want to know how I really know God exists. I want to make sure I really understand that I'm saved. I want to learn how to pray. All these questions that young believers have, answers to life's questions. But once they get them answered, why do I need to go back to church anymore? I've already learned all this. Well, not as well as you think you have, number one. And number two, you need to be reminded of it over and over again because your memory is fleeting. Okay? So this is what happens, why a lot of people fall apart when they hit spiritual adolescence. And we haven't really learned to love God yet. So here we learn personal love for God. And the second is uh, in personal love for all mankind. We have to learn to love others as Christ loved us. And that's really tough. And, and we're not going to get there in this life. And then our occupation with Christ. This is what this passage is talking about. In um, in in First Peter one uh, eight, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet by believing you rejoice with joy with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's learning to love Christ, whom we haven't seen. We don't have that empirical experience with him. We haven't touched him. We don't sit down with dinner with him. But we have to learn to love him. And the only way we can do that is how. Studying his word. We have to come to understand who he is, and the only way we can do that is by studying his word. We can't come to understand him by having by just sitting around and texting. You know, that's what you see today. You go out to the restaurant, you see six people sitting there, the family's having family quality time together, and they all have their smartphones out and they're all texting and to each other even, and they're not talking to each other. But we have to learn to think about that. One of the greatest, greatest examples of this that, that I know of is my first grade Sunday school teacher was a, uh, a German Jew whose family escaped the Holocaust in 1938 and they were able to go to, um, they were able to go to Shanghai. That was just the only place open to Jews. There was a Jewish community there. Uh, 
her name was Ursula Camp. Some of you knew her uh, at, at Baraka Church. And when, when, when she was there, she eventually got out of high school and became a dental assistant. And one of the other dental assistants asked her to come to a Christmas party. And she tried to beg off. And she said, you know, I'll send somebody to pick you up. So she sent this member of the British Constabulary to pick her up. And he picked her up and took her back across town to the British part of town and uh, was her escort for the evening. And on the way home, he informed her. Now, she was 18 and he was 33 or 34. And he informed her that he was the, she was the woman that he was going to marry. She thought he was either drunk or crazy or both. But he got her to translate a letter to her father asking permission to come and visit and come and talk. And so they could, they spent time together like that, just coming together and talking, you know, not going off, not being unchaperoned. But then not long after, three months later, the Japanese invaded China and captured Shanghai. And as a member of the British constabulary, he was put in a POW camp. For the next five years, they got to write each other once a month. No more than ten, le- ten words. Now think about that. That's how they got to know each other. That's about 55 to 60 months. That's how they got to know each other, by writing very carefully. That's how she developed her writing skills, wrote the original Sunday school curriculum at, for Baraka Church, along with Betty Thiem. And that's where she developed those skills. But you learn to know somebody by writing like that. See, we learn to know Jesus by studying his word. It's the mind of Christ. So we have to learn that. So we have to become occupied with him. The result of that is that when we face adversity, then we can rejoice with great joy. We can share the happiness of God that even though we're facing our own cross our own adversity we can do so as jesus did hebrews 12 2 for the joy that is set before him that's the key now as we look at first peter 1 6 through 9 we see four spiritual skills emphasized here now remember all of this is just part of point number two and about 12 points on undeserved suffering or um, yeah suffering for blessing So joy is what we refer to as inner happiness, as sharing the happiness of God that we see as that ultimate ultimate spiritual skill. And we see this mentioned twice in this particular verse. In verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. And then when we get down to verse um, verse 8, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Second thing that's emphasized is faith in terms of the content of what we believe, and that is doctrinal orientation. And we see this in verse 7, that we're tested for that the genuineness of our faith. It's not just an act of believing, but it's acting on what we believe, trusting in what we say we believe. Third, we develop love for Christ, an occupation with Christ as we love him even though we have not seen him, in verse 8. And then in verse 9, we're told that by believing, 
We rejoice with joy inexpressible. Now, this isn't the content of our faith. This is the act of trusting in what we have been taught. Okay, so what we see in these first two points is that every believer goes through various tests, and this gives us the opportunity to either implement what we know or not, either walk the path of wisdom. Remember in, in Proverbs, you either take the path of wisdom or the path of the fool. The fool does what's right in his own eyes, and the end thereof is death. Now, that's not physical death necessarily, but that's a death-like experience. It's a lack of quality of life. But the person who's wise is a person who experiences the fullness of life. That's the contrast. There's not a third choice. There's not a middle way. There's one way or the other. It's the right way or the wrong way. There's nothing, nothing in between. And so we have to train ourselves to make the right choice when we don't want to, when that's not the knee-jerk reaction of our sin nature, when that's not what seems to be most comfortable for us. Okay, third point before we wrap up, we'll just get one more in, that God trains us through situations that teach us to respond biblically. In doing this, we have to start learning how to think and not to emote. We have to learn how to think biblically. We have to analyze the situation and also analyze the Word of God so that we can take the Word of God and the situation and pull them together. That's the issue. We have lots of circumstances every day in life where things happen that don't go the way we want them to go. And immediately we want to react in impatience and anger, resentment, or depression, discouragement, failure, rather than stop, think, how does the Word of God relate to this? What is the promise? What do I know? And if you haven't memorized promises, it's really hard to apply them at this particular point because we're basically trying, trying to shoot the problem with a gun filled with blanks. That's why we need to memorize Scripture so we can put uh, fully load the magazine with the appropriate Scriptures. Okay, next time we're going to come back, talk a little bit more about the, the spiritual skills. Well, one, the fourth point we've already covered. Let me just add that so we don't... Well, we've talked about this, that skills relate to anything from, from musical instruments to physical training, any kind of physical activity... And it demands self-discipline and self-mastery. We have to decide this is what we want. And then we have to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it so that it becomes ingrained in our brain. We can retrain. You spent a lot of time probably before you were saved or before you knew any doctrine, and you got a lot of bad habits. What you have to do is retrain yourself. And the Word of God tells you that you can. It's not hopeless. It may take a long time. It may not be comfortable. It may take you away from friends and situations that you have always enjoyed and take you in a new direction. But that's how we move from being mediocre to being excellent, and that's our objective is to do everything to the glory of God. Okay, next time we'll come back and talk about this 
in terms of the spiritual life and the walk by the Spirit in the fifth, what will be the fifth point. Father, thank you for this opportunity to think about these things, think about how important it is to be trained, to train ourselves under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, taking your word, applying it, being more conscientious every day about the circumstances we're in and how your word teaches us, instructs us to respond in those circumstances. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before I go, let's, I want to pray again. But um, there's a blog that's going to be up on the Dean Bible Ministries website, right? For Jeff and Doug. And that's active now. It's on the West Houston website. There's a blog on the West Houston Bible Church website related to what they're doing down in Brazil, and I wanted to pray for them tonight, so let's pray. Father, thank you that we have Jeff and Doug taking up a a responsible uh, ministry, going down to Brazil, teaching the Word. We pray that everything would go smoothly. We pray that you would uh, make their path straight. We pray that you would give them uh, energy, uh, wisdom, skill, focus, that they may make your word very clear to those who are uh, coming to hear them and that this would be spiritually profitable in their in the maturation process of those to whom they're ministering. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.